It's good. It's good to uh, celebrate the resurrection. You know, it's interesting. We uh, Easter is really the only holiday uh, that we celebrate at the break of dawn, right? When when the sun comes up, that you, you've maybe heard of sunrise services. Our uh, our eight thirty service was sunrose service because it had already come up for a little while, but. Uh, the sunrise service, we celebrate Easter right when the, at the crack of dawn, unless you have kids who get up super early and open up their gifts before the sun comes up at Christmas time. Uh, as adults, that's, this is the holiday that we celebrate uh, right when the, the sun comes up. Uh, and I always wonder why, you know, what, what's the point? Well, there was such an anticipation, such an eagerness to get to this day, people are awaiting to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, scripture actually calls it a new day. Uh, when uh, the Marys are running to the, uh, to the tomb, uh, it's referred to as a new day. Now, we've been in a series for the past few weeks as a church uh, on miracles, and we're just kind of going over the miracles of Jesus. And, uh, and so that was really leading to the culmination of today, which is the greatest miracle of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and be kind of beyond that, what I would say is the miracle of mercy that we receive. So the theme verse that we've been in uh, in the series on miracles is from Psalm 77, verse 14. It says, you are the God of miracles and wonders. You still demonstrate your awesome power. And can I just encourage you this morning that God wants to demonstrate his awesome power in your life today. So we get into the, the story of uh, of the resurrection in Matthew 28, early on a Sunday morning, as the, the new day was dawning. This is a new day. And maybe for some of you today, you will experience a new day of God's mercy in your life. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which is really kind of awful. Like, uh, how would you like to be referred to as the other Mary? I mean, maybe some of you feel like the other Mary and all of your friends, right? You have all these friends and you're like, oh, this is so-and-so and this is so and Oh yeah, that's the other Mary. She's the other Mary in this story. We will always know her as the other Mary. Went out to see the tomb and the angel says to them, he is risen. Now, I'm operating a little bit under the assumption this morning that if you are here, if you, if you walked through the doors of a church, uh, that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize also that some of you may be here with family, you may come in with friends, and, and so maybe there is some skepticism when it comes to the resurrection, and maybe you don't believe that the resurrection actually occurred. Uh, and, and so I had set out originally by uh, giving you three different approaches and three different uh, arguments to the miraculous work of uh, of the resurrection. I'm not going to go into those in detail, but for those of you, because it's in your notes, you've got to fill it out, right? I mean, some of you people, you're, you're like, wait, you missed a blank, and you, you, you're going to leave the church over it. So I'll make sure that you have all of the blanks filled out. Uh, but I just want to briefly touch on this, because if you are that person, if you're one that is skeptical as to whether or not the resurrection actually took place, I honestly would love to spend more time discussing that with you and uh, but here's some of the arguments. Uh, let me read this passage of scripture to you first in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our proclamation, everything that we've done so far this morning, the worship and the singing and all of that, the proclamation has been in vain. And your faith has been in vain. If, if you have a faith, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, raise from the dead, then, then all of what you do, every Sunday you come here, is in vain. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the question is, is did the resurrection happen or is it just some delusional fake news fantasy? Well, there's three arguments. The first is a biological miracle, that a biological miracle took place. And this theory states that uh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that Jesus during the crucifixion didn't die, that the people executing him thought he died, put him in a grave, but then sometime during that, that point, he gets up and leaves the grave because he wasn't ever really dead. He was only partially dead, I think is what they talk about in Princess Bride. So he was mostly dead, but not all the way dead, right? And, and so he gets up, but think about it for a moment. I mean, you, you saw in the, in the worship song, the video depiction, obviously that's just a, uh, an illustration of what the crucifixion, the brutality of it would be. But certainly he would have had his flesh torn. His, he would have had a crown of thorns. He had holes in his head. He would have had holes in his, in his wrists, in his feet, it would, he would have been a bloody mess. And so if he didn't really die from that, when he shows up, it's like zombie time, right? I mean, it's the grossest, most disgusting thing you've ever seen. So really, even skeptics don't make that argument very much. Uh, even the, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, they said, uh, that accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. In other words, what we know today, there ain't no way he's going to live through that. The second thing is a psychological miracle. And this theory essentially says that uh, all of the disciples were on drugs that they were hallucinating when, that, that they had a, a psychological break and were hallucinating that they saw Jesus, but they didn't actually see Jesus. And the problem with this theory is you still have to deal with the empty tomb. There was, historically, no one, even the enemies of Jesus, argued that there was an empty tomb. And so if there's an empty tomb, somebody had to take the body it wasn't the disciples. They're stone having hallucinations. It's not his enemies. Why would they want to perpetuate this notion that he's risen? So who would have run the risk of stealing a corpse? So really, this doesn't hold a whole lot of weight either. The third is a theological miracle. And unlike the other two, that are purely naturalistic only explanation, the theological miracle option doesn't omit the possibility of the supernatural. Meaning that a transcendent creator, a God, could have done a miracle. Now, C.S. Lewis uh, says it like this. He says, if we admit that there's a God, then we must admit that there's, a that, that there's the potential for a miracle. If you believe in God, then you have to believe that there is the possibility that a miracle could take place. So the theological option claims that the New Testament is true in the accounts of Jesus' resurrection. If that's you, 
If you believe that, if you believe that there was a miracle that took place, that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave, then the message I'm about to share with you is really, really good news. So Luke chapter 1, verse 78 says, A new day, again, there's that term, a new day will dawn on us because our God is loving and merciful. I want us to take a look this morning at the miracle of mercy. Most people don't understand the mercy of God. In fact, uh, many people look at God as unmerciful. Many people see God as kind of the big bully in the sky with the magnifying glass trying to fry us little ants down here. Or, uh, we, we, they see God as, as judgmental and judging us and and all this thing. And so we don't really see God in his mercy all that much. But what happens when we begin to understand the mercy of God is that if you have anxiety or stress in your life, when you begin to understand the mercy of God, your anxiety decreases and your peace increases. Let's take a look at the definition of mercy. Mercy is undeserved forgiveness and it's unearned kindness. The Bible says that God wants to show you mercy. And in, in a lot of ways, you are receiving mercy. If you think about the air that you breathe, uh, the, the water that you drink, the life that you live is all from the mercy of God, that God loves you and is merciful towards you. If he didn't love you and if he didn't have mercy towards you, he would have wiped us out a long time ago, kind of started from scratch. But the reality is, is that the creator, our creator loves us and cares about us in such a way that he wants to extend mercy to us. So I want us to answer two questions this morning. When do I need mercy in my life? When do I need God's mercy in my life? And the second is, what difference does it make? Well, what's the big deal about the resurrection? What's the big deal about mercy? God doesn't want our life filled with shame, with anger, with fear. And what I want us to look at this morning are three stories that we can find in Scripture where People were ashamed, they were angry, and they were afraid. And I want us to see if it's possible that maybe there's something about their story that we could relate to. Maybe not the specifics of their situation, but maybe something that we could relate to in having some occurrence in our life in which we've experienced shame. Or, or some situation in our life where we were angry at someone. Maybe you woke up this morning angry at the person you live with. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you've just been afraid. And maybe we can identify with that this morning. So the first thing is when I'm ashamed, that I need God's mercy when I've messed up. Now, that is operating with a fairly large assumption that none of us are perfect. I don't think it's really all that debatable uh, unless you're one of those people that are like, I've got this, I've got this life figured out. I've never made a mistake in my life. I don't know anybody that's ever said that. I know a lot of people who say, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. 
Have you ever, have you ever made a mistake uh, with, your, uh, with your words? Have you, if, you, if you're married uh, or you're in a relationship, you've, you've probably made this mistake where you start talking, uh, it usually goes something like this. Do you like how this looks on me? And there's words that are coming out of your mouth and, you, and, and almost as soon as they're there, you're just trying to shove them back into your mouth. Right? You've, you've made mistakes with your words. I mean, that's kind of a silly example, but there's probably other examples where we've made mistakes with our attitude or our emotions. We've just flown off the handle. See, what happens is, is when we make these mistakes in life, what often happens is it, it, we, we, we get trapped in it. We get trapped in this idea that, that in my mistakes, God can't forgive me. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. So let's just lay that out there this morning, that all of us have stumbled in many ways. None of us are perfect. And in our imperfection, at times we can find ourselves trapped. I want to tell you about the story of a woman who was humiliated. This is a story of a woman, and many of you will probably be familiar with portions of it, but this story is about a woman who, some religious leaders, some church-going folks, and maybe you know some of these church-going folks. I, don't, I hope not. I hope none of them go to our church. But these, these religious leaders go into a home where there's a woman who's having a, an adulterous relationship with a man. And they pull this woman out of the home and throw her in public, throw her out onto a street in front of Jesus, into the dirt. Now, I don't know if she, they clothed her. Like, they just threw her out there, completely working to humiliate this woman. And in the context of this, there's really two words, or three words, caught, caught, and trapped. That Jesus, or, or that these religious leaders uh, caught this woman in a wrong relationship. These religious leaders were trying to catch Jesus in the wrong response, and they were also trying to trap him to, in saying something that would go against their religious laws of the time and be able to then persecute Jesus. So caught, caught, and trapped. That's, that was the circumstance. This woman was caught, and now she's trapped in the midst of her shame. And what we find in this story is that Jesus is kneeling down on the ground. It's hard in my hipster skinny pants. He's kneeling down on the ground and he's, he's writing something in the dirt. So these religious leaders, they, they bring her in, they throw her down. Here's Jesus, She's fa he's faced with this partially clothed woman, adulterous woman and all of these religious leaders and he's writing in the dirt. He stands up and he looks at the religious leaders and he says to them, if any of you have never sinned, then you throw the first stone. And then he goes back to his knees and just starts writing in the dirt again. Now, I don't know what he was writing in the dirt. 
Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know. At times we've seen a line drawn in the sand. You cross the line if you've never sinned or whatever. But it does say that he was writing in the, in the dirt on the road. And I have a theory. I can't prove this biblically. But my theory is that he's writing the sin, the secret sin of all of the religious leaders. Just writing it out. Adulterer, liar, steal, you know, thief, uh, uh, religiousness, piousness, like all of these secret sins that these religious leaders, he just started writing them out. And then he's like, and if you've, if you've never sinned, if the, none of these are yours, uh, then go ahead and throw the first stone. Now, in this public situation, you have a woman who was in a wrong relationship. There's no denying that. It's an adulterous relationship. You have a woman who's been thrown out into the street to be humiliated, and Jesus does something very interesting. He protects the dignity of this woman. And I've never really read it in that context before. I, I get this idea that Jesus is sticking up for her and all that, but he's protecting the dignity of this woman. And, and what is implied in that is that if you consider yourself a Jesus follower, if you consider yourself a Christian, then no matter what an individual has done, no matter how long they've been doing it, no matter what side of the political nonsense they're on, what, what, no matter who they are, what they look like, what religion they are, if we call ourselves Christ followers, then we have a responsibility to treat every individual with dignity. With dignity. Every person can expect as Christ followers dignity from us. Jesus treated this woman. There was no doubt that what she had done, she knew what she had done, but he preserved her dignity. When the accusers heard Jesus say, hey, if any of you have never sinned, then, then go ahead and cast the first stone. What happens is, uh, the, starting from older to younger, they start kind of disappearing. They start leaving. And it's probably because he started with the older people's sin because that list was longer. And, and if, you, if you've been around for any amount of time, you realize that the older you get, the more you realize how much you've messed things up. I'm I'm going to be 41 at the end of this month, and I recognize now how many things that I've really made a mistake on. When I was in college, I was perfect. I was brilliant, right? I mean, there's no more self-righteous person than a college student. At least I was. I was. So, because I knew everything. Got all this new information. I, I, I was the smartest person in the room. Now I'm like, I don't know anything. And... And I recognize that I've made a lot of mistakes. And that's what's happening here. These old people are like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, okay, stop, 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 stop. They're like kicking the dirt as they walk away, covering up the sin that they had. And it's the youngest that ultimately end up walking away last. And at that point, Jesus stood back up and quietly says to her, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to condemn you? And her response is, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go on and leave your sinful ways. In other words, you're better than this. You're better than this life. This isn't what I created you for. He didn't condemn her, but he also didn't condone her actions. He did what he continues to do in every one of our lives, 
or wants to do in every one of our lives. And maybe some of you have experienced, he changed her. He changed her. He didn't condemn her. He didn't condone it. He changed her life. So what happens when I ask God for mercy in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my shame and my guilt? God's mercy forgives and frees me from my past. Now, I know a lot of people who struggle, struggle and are stuck in the past because they can't let go. But when we ask God for his mercy, the forgiveness takes care of the past guilt and the freedom gives me the power to change in the future. This is what Jesus came to do. In Isaiah 61, it says, I was sent to announce freedom to all held captive and forgiveness to all who've been imprisoned. He's, talking, he's not talking about being literally in prison. He's talking about the emotional prison that you may be in right now. He's talking about the prison of regret, the prison of, of resentment. Some people are in a prison of, of envy or worry, or, or maybe you're in a prison of addiction or, uh, or, or, or past sins and habits in your life. Jesus says in John 12, I have come to save the world and not judge it. I want, to be, I want to be like Jesus. It's not my job to judge the world. It's just to point people to our Savior, to Jesus, to mercy. Now, it doesn't mean that there won't be a judgment day one day. Like That will happen. We, we see that all through Scripture. So we know that a judgment day is coming, but that's for people who reject the grace and the mercy of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. On Friday night uh, at our Good Friday service, we had uh, the opportunity to hear from four different people about the mercy of God intersecting their life. Uh, it started, the service started with uh, this canvas right here, and uh, the canvas had just a, an outline of a cross, uh, kind of a block cross. And by the end of the service, this is what it, it turned into. It's beautiful. This is uh, Sarah Giese's painting. She's an, a, a local artist, and uh, she was helping lead us in worship this morning. And so all throughout the service, she was painting this as we were hearing about the mercy of God. The point is, is that when God's mercy intersects our life, we go from this dead uh, execution tool to life. We go from the dead in our sin to a place of life, and Scripture says life abundantly. Let me show you how God responds to us with our hurts, with our, the habits that we've allowed in our life, some of the things that we just can't let go of in our past. In Psalm 86, he said, it says, O oh Lord, you are so good and you are so kind. You are so ready to forgive, so full of mercy for all those who ask your aid. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're reminded that Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are. But he didn't sin. So whenever we're in need, we should come bravely before the throne of our merciful God to come before him and say, God, 
I need your mercy in my life. And there we will receive mercy and find the grace to help us in our time of need. So we need God's mercy when we are ashamed, when we've made mistakes in the midst of our guilt. But we also need God's mercy when we're angry. I need God's mercy when, when I don't have what I need when my needs aren't met, when things don't work out the way that I would like them to work out, I need God's mercy when my life isn't going the way that I thought it should go. There's a man in scripture who I would call a disappointed man. It's in John chapter five. And this is about a guy who he was paralyzed and he would sit every day by a pool of water uh, that urban legend had it that an angel would come and stir the waters. And if the, if the waters were, began to swirl and stir, that if you jumped into the water, you would be healed. And so there were all kinds of people who needed physical healing. They would come around and they would, uh, they would sit around this pool and wait for the waters to be stirred. Now, this man, this paralyzed man, had been there for 38 years. 38. Eight years, every day, sitting by this pool of water, putting his faith in something other than God. See, we'll always be disappointed if we expect something else or someone else to meet a need in our life that only God can meet. If we start looking to our spouse to meet that void in our life, if, you, if you've been married, you know that that doesn't work. It doesn't work. There's, there's a need that only God can provide. And this man is so disappointed because he's still paralyzed after 38 years. What are you disappointed with this Easter? Are you disappointed with your marriage? Are you disappointed in, in where your life is? Maybe you thought your life should be somewhere else and it's not. Are you disappointed in your career? What does Jesus do with our disappointments? He responds with mercy. It says, when Jesus saw this man and heard that he'd been lying there for such a long time, he asked him a question. Now, you got a picture it. This guy's been paralyzed 38 years. He asked him a question, do you want to get well? Yes, yes, Jesus, I've been here for 38 years hoping that one day I would get well. And you ask me, do I want to get well? And, and we look at that and we're like, it's a little condescending, Jesus. Come on. I mean, like the guy, you know he wants to get well, but I actually think it's a really good question. And the reason why I think it's a good question is because I think that in life, there are many people I know who say they want to be well, but don't really want to be well. See, the challenge is, is that when you're unhealthy or you're in an unhealthy marriage or you're in an unhealthy situation or sin in your life or whatever, when someone says, do you want to get well? The obvious answer should be yes, but then you realize that in order to be well, in order to be healthy, it's going to require change. It's going to require something 
of you. And now all of a sudden, the uncomfortableness of being healthy doesn't look all that appealing. I think for many people, they live in an unhealthy life and are comfortable in that. Now, they would say they want to be healthy, but, but in the end, when it really comes down to it, do you want to be well? And that's the question for us this morning. Do we want to be well? Do we want to be healthy? Health means change, and that's scary. You say, well, what are you saying, Ryan? Well, he's saying that I'm just, I don't want to be out of my unhealthy marriage and that I should just, or, or that I should just get a divorce or, or whatever. All I'm saying is that in order to be healthy, you're going to have to change you. There will need to be change in you. Uh, the, uh, what is it that you say all the time, Jacob? You do you, boo? Something along those lines. You, you do you, right? He doesn't ever say that. I just want to totally embarrass him today. It's the third service. He got off on the first two services, so. You do you. You can't change your spouse, but you can change you. You can't allow the mercy of God to work in you. And what you'll find is that your relationship begins to change. The man replies, uh, Sir, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get there, somebody else always gets ahead of me. And he kind of does what we kind of do when somebody says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be out of this situation? Do you want to be healthy again in your life? We kind of say, well, yeah, I want to, but I can't because this person and this situation and this circumstance. And, and, and we start blaming everything else. And this man starts to blame everything else. And Jesus simply says to him, I want you to stand up, pick up your mat, and start walking. And when the man trusted Jesus, he was immediately able to walk again. We know that on this earth, in this life, not everyone is going to get healed that we pray for. We know that in this life, not every prayer is going to be answered. We know this. But we also know that when I ask God for his help and his mercy in the midst of an impossible situation, God's mercy makes the impossible possible. That he can do things that I can't. What's the impossible problem in your life? Say, well, I've been waiting at the pool for 38 years and I still don't have a husband. The pool could be two different things there, right? I, what is the impossible situation? Because scripture reminds us in Luke chapter 18, what is impossible with men is possible with God. But we also are reminded in 2 Peter 1, as you get to know Jesus better, he will give you through his great power everything you need for living a truly good life. The challenge is, is we don't get that power until we accept the mercy of God in our life. So when we're ashamed, when we're angry, and then the third way, and this is a problem we all have. We all have fear. Now, my fears are pretty reasonable. They're logical, they're rational. Yours are a little bit ridiculous. 
right? That's, that's how we think. That's how we operate. We're like, yeah, you should be afraid of the things that I'm afraid of. I said one time that I was afraid of snakes, and they're like, oh, snakes are like the most nice, comfortable, you know what I mean? They're like, what? No, they're not. I hate them. Like, there's a reason that Satan went into a serpent. Like, they're the devil. And if you have a pet snake, it's the devil. You should get rid of it. We all have these fears and we all think ours are logical and everybody else's is crazy and dumb. But there is a fear that we all share. There is a fear that's universal and that's the fear of death. See, I need God's mercy when facing death. Death is inevitable and and without faith, death is fearful. If you don't have the mercy of God, you're probably going to be pretty fearful of death. So for this story, we look to uh, the, thieves, the thieves on the cross. You've got Jesus in the center, and then you've got on either side of him two thieves that if we don't know exactly what they've done, uh, I should say the two criminals uh, on the cross, we don't know exactly, but whatever they did was bad enough to get crucified. In Luke chapter 23, one of the criminals being executed on a cross beside Jesus ridiculed him, saying, if you're supposed to be the Messiah, I've got an idea. Why don't you save yourself? And, oh, by the way, go ahead and save us in the process. But the second criminal rebuked him. He said, man, don't you even fear God when you're dying? The reason people make fun of God or, or live their life ignoring God is because they don't think that there's anything after death. They think death is the end. The reality is, and we see this in Scripture, is that there is life after death. The criminal on the cross says, we deserve to die for our evil deeds, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me, When you come into your kingdom, and Jesus replied, I guarantee you that today you will be with me in paradise. That's what's called last-minute mercy. It's called deathbed confession. Jesus, remember me. What's implied here is that I can't save myself. I'm not perfect. I have no hope. And he throws himself at the mercy of God. There are are some people who will tell you that in order to be saved, in order to receive God's mercy, you have to pray a certain prayer. You have to say certain words. You have to hold your leg like this while you say those prayers. They have all of these rules about how you receive the salvation of God. And this is the shortest salvation prayer in the history of all time. Remember me. Remember me. So if somebody says, well, in order to be saved, this is what you have to say, and you can just say, no, all I have to do is say, remember me. Because it wasn't the words, it was, it was the heart. If there's one thing that will keep us from the mercy of God, it is our pride. It's our pride. Our unwillingness to receive the mercy of God. And this guy says, when you When you go into your kingdom, will you remember me? Everyone knows that he can do miracles, right? They've seen it. They've seen him perform the miraculous. And here he is, the guy on the cross, 
And he doesn't ask Jesus to do a miracle and save his life or get him off the cross or strike down all the Roman soldiers. He just simply says, will you remember me? Now, some of you will think, oh, well, this is fantastic. I can just wait, right? This guy waited till he's about to die and I can wait until I get a little bit older or I get to a place where I'm diagnosed with a terminal illness or whatever the situation, and then I'll go party now, do whatever I want to do, live my life for myself, and then right at the end, I'll throw myself at the mercy of God and I'll be good. The challenge with that is it just doesn't take into consideration that when you pull onto Wilderness Oak, uh, like I do every single day, uh, there is a very good chance that I'm going to get killed. Because those people fly down that hill, and when I'm pulling out, if I get T-boned, it's it. It's like, well, I, I was going to do it. I, I, I had every intention of throwing, my, uh, throwing myself at the mercy of God, but, but I got T-boned just a few years too soon. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you, but I am trying to tell you that you don't know what tomorrow holds. You, you, could, you could get Alzheimer's tomorrow and you won't remember anything. But today, you know. Today, we know that we have a loving God who wants to extend his mercy to us. So what would keep us from receiving his mercy and being a changed person today other than our pride? See, God's mercy will save me for eternity. John 11, chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, will live again. See, if, if Jesus rose from the grave, I believe that he can raise me as well. There's a condition, though, of receiving the mercy of God. I don't know if you know this. It's in Acts chapter 2. Here's the condition. Anyone who asks for mercy from the Lord shall have it and shall be saved. The condition is you just ask. Remember me. You say, well, who can do that? Anyone. In the Greek, it means anyone. In Isaiah chapter 30, this is the Easter message for you. The Lord God is waiting to show you how kind he is and to have mercy on you. The Lord always does what's right, and he blesses those who trust him. The man who was laying by the pool, it says that when he trusted Jesus, he was healed. I want us to close our time out in prayer, and I want to lead you in a prayer that talks about the mercy of God. And, and if you're here this morning, listen, I recognize, I look around the room, and many of you have received the saving mercy of Jesus Christ in your life. But there is the possibility that some of you have never experienced that, have never surrendered your life to Jesus, never humbled yourself before him, thrown yourself at the mercy of God and said, I'm tired of living my life my way. I want to live my life for you. And if that's you, man, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I would invite you to pray this along with me. Can we bow our heads and pray? God, I need your mercy I've messed up, I've missed out, and I know that one day I will face you. 
I've ignored you and I've loved other things more than I've loved you. And today, I want that to change. Thank you for being so merciful. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I do know that only your mercy can save me. Just like the thief on the cross, I say, remember me. Save me, not just from hell, but from hell on earth. Thank you for the the mercy. Thank you for your mercy. And I do this because of what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. Amen.